going to read this morning from the book of Joshua. We're in Joshua chapter 10. Last week we had our family service, and so we broke from our series working through this book. But we're going to pick it up again, Joshua chapter 10. What I'm going to read here this morning as you turn it up is one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. This passage we're going to study this morning causes serious, serious problems for lots of people. Often people will cite this in an argument on an online discussion about the existence of God or whether you should believe in God or or face-to-face in the workplace. Why would you not believe in God? Why would you reject God? This passage is often cited as one of the reasons people don't want anything to do with the God that we've been singing about. We've just been singing a song about how great God is. People will cite this passage as the reason of saying, God is not great. God is not wonderful. If this is the God you follow, I don't want anything to do with your, two, with your God. There are actually two main problems that people argue about in this passage. The first, the first bit that we're going to read about is a story about the sun. Joshua and his men are going to go into a battle. and They don't have enough daylight. They don't have enough time in the day for the, the battle to be accomplished, to be, get it through to victory. And so there's a prayer request for the sun to stop in the sky. And the Bible says the sun actually did stop. And the day was longer than any other day that there's ever been. And people will read a story like that and say, nonsense. It's a fairy story. How could you read and trust and give any credibility to a book that says that the sun stopped in the sky? But then as we read on, there's another problem that people bring up. And people actually say this is the bigger problem of the two. Because as we work our way through Joshua 10, we have the destruction of the Canaanites, the enemies of God's people. People look at this and say, well, I don't want anything to do with this kind of God. I don't want anything to do with a God who wipes out nations, men, women, and children. A God, as we see here in the pages of Joshua 10, seems to be a cruel God. He's a vindictive God. And perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you struggle with this. You know, you're doing your devotions. Maybe you're working your way through the Bible. There's lots of lovely passages, uh, things like the Psalms and in the Gospels, and they warm your heart about God. And then you read passages like this, and you don't know exactly how to handle it. You don't know how to explain it. And there seems to be the, the slaughter, the destruction of lots and lots of people. And it doesn't seem to balance up with the God that you see in other passages of Scripture. And maybe if you read these, well, maybe it's easier just to skip over them because you don't know how to handle it or it makes you uncomfortable as you read it. Or perhaps you're in the workplace and you're having a discussion with somebody, you believe in God, why do you believe in God? Why do you not believe in God? And somebody will throw up, well, here's a God who, who wipes out nations. How do you answer that? How do you explain that? And you're sitting there going, I have no idea whatsoever how to handle an argument or a passage like that. So what we want to do here this morning is not to skip over. The easiest thing for a preacher like myself is to say, that's a controversial passage. That's a difficult passage. Let's just skip over it. No, that's not what we do. We work our way through, and that's a a deliberate thing we do as we work our way through books of the Bible. We work our way through chapter by chapter. We take on the difficult passages because we don't think we should be afraid of them, but we should actually look at them in the light of Scripture, and we should try and understand, has God made a mistake? No. I believe all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, as the Bible says. And I think we should read it and try and understand how it fits in 
to our understanding and our concept of who God really is. There are two problems I've mentioned, the Son and the slaughter of the nations. And so we're going to read this in two parts. And so we'll start off at verse 1, and we'll read the first 15 verses. Let's read God's Word together. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hotham, king of Hebron, and Purim, king of Jarmuth, to Japha, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, and the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with their, all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into panic before Israel. He struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Machedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Atakah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Let's pause there in our passage. Say so there's two problems in the passage. The first one that people will point to is that God stops the sun in the sky. This passage describes an incredible event. That's why verse 14 says, there's been no day like it. So in the history of the world, for thousands of years, we have been here on planet Earth as humans. There has never, ever been a day like this, where God stopped the sun with a day that is longer than any other. The last time when we looked in Joshua in chapter 9, the Gibeonites came, remember they dressed up as if they'd come from a far distance and they pretended to be from a different place and they tricked the Israelites and they made a peace pact with them. And then five other kings who lived in the promised land decide to come together, make a pact and attack the Gibeonites. And the Israelites come to the rescue. They've made this pact with the Gibeonites and they come to rescue and defend them from the attack of five other kings. 
And what we read here in the passage is it's an uneven fight. We're told that the Lord himself fought for the Israelites. God himself fought with his people, and he actually used unlikely weapons, hailstones from the sky, hailstones that it says came down and killed more men that day than were killed with swords. However, as they were in this battle, there was a practical problem for the Israelites. The day was not long enough. They didn't have enough hours in the day to finish the job, and they wanted to make sure that the battle was complete. And so we have this remarkable prayer from Joshua. He praised the Lord that the sun in the sky would stand still. And that, as we read on the passage, is what happens. Now, I believe this is an historical event. It's recorded in the pages of Scripture. Other people will read this and go, what nonsense. It's a myth. This actually attacks the credibility of Scripture. How could the sun stop in the sky? Think of the the implications for the earth, even just from a, a practical, scientific point of view of the sun stopping still. And people will argue against that this is a problem, Um, Is it just a myth? Is it just a fairy tale? But the same kind of thinking actually rejects any belief in the miraculous. Because this isn't the only miraculous event that's recorded in the pages of Scripture. As you work your way through the Bible, time and time again, miraculous things happen. Miraculous things happen that are out of the ordinary. That's what makes them miraculous. If they happened on a regular basis, they wouldn't be miraculous. They're things that go against the normal rules of life here on earth. Let's take one from our last series that we did in Exodus, where Moses brings the children of Israel out. There's the Red Sea in front. What happens? The water stops flowing. Every day before, the water just flowed. Every day after, the water in the Red Sea flows. But on that day, something miraculous, something out of the ordinary, the Bible records happened where the water stopped and a dry path was made for God's people. Goes against the natural order of things. Let's take the Christmas story. Let's take about Jesus coming into the world. How did Jesus enter? By a virgin birth. Has there ever been a virgin birth before? No. Has there ever been a virgin birth since? No. This is out of the ordinary. It's miraculous. It breaks all the natural rules. Is it just a myth? It's just a fairy story, as some people will say. Let's take the resurrection of Jesus Christ, where Jesus rises again. In fact, the reason we are here this morning is we believe that is not a fairy tale. The whole basis, foundation stone of Christianity is that Jesus rose. Not only did he die on the cross for our sins, but he is a living Savior. We sing songs to a living Savior because we believe that the natural order of things were broken, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Yesterday, I was reading a book by the famous scientist Stephen Hawkins. Before you get impressed, I have never read a Stephen Hawkins book before. I didn't buy the book. I came across it in Sainsbury's and Carrickfergus. I thought it was a bit highbrow for Sainsbury's Carrickfergus. No offense, Lewis. Uh, I wasn't expecting to see it. But I'll tell you how I ended up reading it. We went in yesterday into Sainsbury's, the family, to pick up a few things, pick up a newspaper and a few other things, and discovered Saturday and afternoon in Carrickfergus Sainsbury's is not a wise idea, especially with all the fear around coronavirus. There wasn't a toilet roll to be found on the shelves, and it was just full of people going crazy yesterday afternoon. I'm not a good shopper at the best of times, but in that situation, 
I thought, I need to get out of here. And so I let Joanne do the shopping, and I was the typical useful, useless man that I am, and I stood at the book center, or counter there, and just flicked through some books. And I saw this book by Stephen Hawkins, famous scientist who died a few years ago. And uh, I picked it up and just started flicking through. And interestingly, the first chapter was answering the question, is there a God? And then he gives his reasons, his logic, his understanding of why he believes that there isn't a God. And the the basis of his argument in that chapter that I very quickly flicked through links in with this because he disputes that the miraculous can happen. And the reason he says a line like this, he says, if you believe in science as I do, you realize that the physical laws are unchangeable. The things that happen in our world cannot change. There is no place. That's just the way the world works. And so there isn't a God because the unchangeable doesn't happen. But that's the point of miracles. The point of miracles is they are out of the ordinary. They're not regular things that we can see and observe and understand. They are supernatural events. They're contrary to the everyday order. And just because they're not common, just because we have never seen them, just because we have never experienced them, doesn't mean they're impossible. And so we need to come to the other side of the argument, and we need to say, but if there is an all-powerful God, and if there is a God who created all things... If there is a God who set the physical laws of this world into place, then he is more than able to step in at any stage and change the physical laws that he himself set in place. And you can have endless debates about the existence of God or the credibility of God backwards and forwards of people. It's philosophical arguments that you can have, and we can go backwards and forwards. And people might say, well, how can you prove? You can have these arguments. Somebody says, no, that's impossible. And we say, well, it is possible if you have an all-powerful God. How do you prove the existence of a powerful creator God? The only place I can go to is to come to Scripture itself. And when I come to Scripture, I read these words in the book of Romans. People will dispute these, but I will hold on to these words in Romans 1. Let me read them to you. It's talking about people who have rejected God. It says, For his, that's God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. God is a spirit. We cannot see God. We cannot see God with our eyes. The Bible teaches us. But his eternal power, his divine nature, the incredible might of an all-powerful God have been clearly perceived, clearly seen. Although we can't see God, we can see his power and his divine nature and his might, and it's clearly seen so that humans can actually see it with their own eyes. Ever since the creation of the world, so from the first day, it has been clear, it has been obvious, the eternal power and the divine nature of our God, and that things that have been made so that they, that's people who reject God, are without excuse. So people can't turn around and say, well, I haven't seen enough evidence. I haven't seen enough that convinces me that there is God. And in that day when people will stand in front of the almighty God, the judge of all the earth, there will be no excuse. Because as we look around our world, we don't see everything, but we see enough to prove the eternal power and divine nature. And so when you take um, issues like the, the laws of nature, the order that we have, the complexity of our world, we don't live in a world of chaos. We live in a world with real complexity and order. What does that scream out? 
that it screams out the eternal power and divine nature of a creator God who made this complex world in all its wonder, in all its splendor, screams. This is no accident. This is no chaos just spinning out there that there is an incredible, all-powerful God behind it. And the logic is, if there is a powerful God, then nothing is impossible for him. And so let a story like sun stopping in the sky, although it may seem far-fetched, although it's not our experience, there's never been a day like it in the history of the world, comes back to, do you believe that there is an all-powerful God? And if there is an all-powerful creator God, then nothing is impossible for him. But the bigger problem that we encounter in these passages, the one that's thrown back up more times than this one about the sun, is what happens in the next verses. Because many will argue, as we've already said, if God does exist, if there is an all-powerful creator God, and I, I, and I give you that, if there is a God like that, the God who's portrayed in the rest of these verses is a God that I want absolutely nothing to do with. Well, is this a valid complaint? Well, let's look. Let's look at the next verses. Last week, we had a family service. I would never read these verses at a family service. They would not be appropriate. And what happens next here in the rest of the story, if it was made into a film, you wouldn't let your children watch it. But it's part of Scripture, and we don't want to skip over it, and we want to handle it, and we want to handle it in the right way. So let's pick up at verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it in, to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring these five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought these five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings, then come near and put their feet on their necks. Or then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they were, had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. As for Makedah, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it in its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did it to the king of Makedah, just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Do you get that? Here's where people struggle. He devoted to destruction every person in it. So five kings who started this war attacked the Gibeonites. They hide in a cave and they bring them out and they make a spectacle of them. They use a symbolic act. 
It's a symbolic act that was actually meant to be an encouragement for the children of Israel. They bring out these five kings, they lay them down on the ground, and they put their feet on their necks. They use their enemies as a footstool. That's an image that's used in Psalm 110, talking about what God will do with his enemies. He will use them as a footstool. He will put his foot on their necks. That was a symbolic sign to people. When you put your foot on the neck, on the head of your enemy, it was a sign that you had complete victory over them. So say it was done to encourage the people. As the Israelites looked on at this spectacle, verse um, 25, let's read it out. Verse 25 says, And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Nobody will stand against you. This is what's going to happen to everybody in the land of Canaan. And then Joshua and the Israelites engage in the destruction of their enemies. They continue the conquest of the land. And so I'll read on. Let's read verse 40 in chapter 10. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And then it goes into verse, or chapter 11 as well. Cast your eye on the verse 14. And all the spoils of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. And if we were to continue into chapter 12 as well, we'd read the same story as they capture and destroy all of their enemies. And here is the big problem. God destroys his enemies. God commands it. It's not that Joshua is some sort of rogue commander. He just goes off script and starts doing it in his way. He starts wiping out his enemies, those who get in his way. No, actually, Joshua is being obedient to his commander-in-chief because what you'll find throughout chapters 10, 11, and 12 is that it says Joshua did as the Lord had commanded. It was God himself who commanded the complete destruction of the enemies who lived in the, in the promised land. And this greatly disturbs people. The atheistic critic Richard Dawkins has labeled what we've, I've just read here as ethnic cleansing. He puts it this way. This is the bloodthirsty massacres carried out by xenophobic relish. That's what it is. See, in his eyes, this is just a massacre. It's xenophobic. These are people who just hate people from a different nation. And they do it with this relish just to destroy people who are different from them. And so the argument goes, if there is a God, obviously he's not a good God. He's not a kind God. Why would you want to follow a God like this? Instead, this is a God who needs to be rejected. So how do we explain the destruction of the enemies? Well, I think one of the key verses here is chapter 11, verse 15. Let's look at eleven fifteen. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua wasn't going off script here. Joshua was doing exactly what the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses never got to the promised land, but he had passed on the instruction to Joshua. So that raises the question, what did God command Moses to do that's then passed on to Joshua? Well, we've got to go back in our scripture. We've got to go back over 40 years ago when God took Moses and he explained exactly what to do. He said, when you get into the promised land, this is how you're going to behave. And this is exactly what you're going to do with the people who live in the promised land. So let's go. We've got a Bible back to Deuteronomy 7 when God gives the instructions to Moses. Deuteronomy 7, we're going to read the first five verses.
Okay, Deuteronomy 7 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before it, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction, completely wipe them out. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So God says, when you come into the land, destroy the people who live there. And what's, why will the implication coming out is because they follow other gods. They're going to have a bad effect upon you, but they're people who don't acknowledge the living God. And then he develops it further across the page. You turn to Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5. He gives another insight into why he wants them destroyed when they come into the land. Deuteronomy 9 and verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So in God's eyes, as he looks at these people, these aren't just innocent bystanders who happen to be living in the land that he wants to give to his people. You're destroying them because of their wickedness. This isn't simply clearing the land for people to live in. God has seen their wickedness years and years before. In fact, if you go back centuries before to Genesis 15, when God gives the promises to Abraham that his people will live in a land, he mentions the Amorites, he mentions the Canaanites, and he mentions their sin hundreds of years before. And so actually, as they go in, it's not just clearing the land. This is an act of judgment from a holy God for the wickedness of these nations who follow other gods. To say these aren't innocent bystanders, these people are utterly corrupt and sinful. What do we know about these people as they worshipped other gods? Well, one of the key things is they would take children, not anybody's children, they would take their own children and sacrifice their own children alive as an offering to their gods. These are people who are not innocent bystanders. Their wickedness has been seen for God, and it's wickedness that has been continued has continued on for centuries and centuries, right from the time of Abraham when God mentioned it to him. And over those centuries, they've had time to turn away from their false gods, turn away from their wickedness, turn away from their practice, and turn to their living God. And what would have happened if they had done that exactly the same as Rahab, who we discovered earlier in our series? Here's Rahab, involved in lots of sinful activities. She turns to the living God. She turns her back on the false gods of her people. She puts her faith and hope in the living God. And what has happened? She is rescued. She is spared from the destruction that is coming towards her people. Now, if we go back to Joshua 11, verse 20 is an interesting verse. It's an interesting verse of how God works with people who have sinned and continued to sin. Joshua 11 and verse 20 says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle in order they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. See, the Canaanites for centuries have been living in sin and wickedness. They had not turned 
the living God. And as Romans 1 says, they were without excuse. The evidence of a living God was all around them. And unlike Rahab, they refused to turn. So God in this moment hardens their heart. God says, I've had enough. Your sin has continued for centuries. I have had enough. He hardens their hearts, which encourages them to go out to fight against the Israelites. And a sovereign God has planned it that his people will be the instruments of justice, the instruments of judgment. This will be holy judgment. And after centuries of opportunities, turn from their sin and turn to the Lord, the day of grace for the Canaanites is over. God hardens their hearts and brings judgment upon them. And here's the reason we struggle with this. And maybe you're sitting here and you still struggle with it. How could God allow this to happen? We're missing something really, really significant. There's something that each of us feels to grasp, and we will never fully comprehend it. Do you know what we feel to grasp? The character of God. We feel to grasp the holiness of God. God is pure and perfect and glorious in all his splendor. We don't grasp that sin, the sins that we do, even that might seem tame in comparison to the Canaanites, those sins pain the heart of God because they are just the complete opposite of his character. We feel to grasp the holiness of God on one hand, and we feel to grasp the seriousness of our sin because we make light of sin. We don't think it's serious. But actually, reading this passage in Joshua should waken us up. Okay, it mightn't sit comfortably with us, but it wakens us up to the holiness of God and how serious that God treats sin that it must be destroyed. That's the holiness of God in action. See, when we come to God, we treat God a wee bit like a Santa Claus figure. You know, he's kind and he's generous and he always ignores wrong. Now, people talk about the naughty and nice list, okay? Comes to Santa Claus, there's a naughty nice list and there's a nice list. But even as a child, you knew that that was nonsense, okay? Everybody on Christmas morning woke up and got a Christmas present no matter how they behaved. And there was always this rumor going around primary school, oh, I had a cousin and they were naughty and they woke up on Christmas morning and there was a, you know, some ashes and coal in their sack. And you knew as a child, it was nonsense. And what made it worse, what made it even more infuriating was, the worst behaved child in your class usually got better Christmas presents than you. And so there was no justice in it. And we sometimes think God's a bit like this. There is no naughty or nice list. You know, he'll turn a blind eye to it and he's not really holy and sin doesn't upset him and we'll all be okay in the end. And yes, we may do things that we know are wrong and we shouldn't really do them. But you know what? It's gonna be all right in the end because God will just ignore it. God will not take it seriously. And so we don't take it seriously. And that comes from the wrong understanding of exactly who God is. But because God is completely holy, sin is an abomination to him. Now, what are we told about the character of God in Scripture? He is slow to anger. He could have stepped in centuries before and destroyed the Amorites. That's what they would have deserved, and they would have had no complaint. And yet he has been slow to anger. Centuries, opportunities to turn to the living God. And yet there comes a point where he says, enough is enough. He will not continue indefinitely. He will step in. And the judge of all the earth will do what is right. God will act. God will be just. He will punish unrepented sin. You see, sadly, we don't think sin is serious. This is a wake-up for us. The destruction of the Canaanites shows us how seriously God treats sin. 
And so three quick points as we finish. What should this chapter do for us? The first thing it should do is it should be a, a warning for us. It should sober all of us up. Many of us have the wrong fruit of God. We have a God who abhors sin. He will judge it. And here's the stark reality. We all sin. We all disobey. We all rebel against the holy God. Yeah, we're not as bad as the Canaanites who were sacrificing their own children. We're not on that scale. But when we examine ourselves, we know what we're like. I know what I'm like. I know what Peter Lawler's like. I am sinful to the core. I'm sinful in my thoughts. I'm sinful in the things that come out of my mouth. Ask my wife who lives with me. I'm sinful in what I do. And I cannot stand and say, well, naughty or nice list, maybe I just scrape onto the nice list. It's a warning to us in the seriousness of my sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And here's the reality. We all deserve the judgment of a holy God. And what we have here in Joshua 10, the judgment of the Canaanites is actually a precursor. It's a forewarning for another greater judgment that is still to come. A greater judgment that the Bible tells us about when God judges all sin. We read about it in Revelation 20. I think this is a difficult passage. I encourage you later on to read Revelation 20. The final judgment where God judges those who've continued in their sin and rejected him and whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life. And what is their destruction? It's eternal destruction as they're separated from God and they face the judgment of God forever and ever and ever. And you see, in a world full of sin, you might say, well, why has God not come already? Do you know why God has not stepped into this world? Because he's patient. He's slow to anger. But here's the warning. And here's the warning of this passage. His patience will not continue forever. And judgment will come. And it's a warning for each of us. But his righteousness guarantees that surely it will come. And one day he will say enough and the judge of earth will do what's right. But because he's a gracious God, he always provides a way to escape his judgment. Let's go back in the Old Testament to Noah. The story of the flood. We think about a nice little boat and animals. What's the story of Noah all about? Judgment of God because of the sin of the people. Where people, men, women, and children are destroyed because of their sin, their rejection of God. But what did God do in the story of Noah? He provided a way of escape. There was a boat. And very few went to it. And they ignored it. They laughed at it. They mocked it. And they ignored it. God was patient all those years. It took Noah an opportunity to come to it. Let's think about what happened here in the story of the Israelites. Was there a way of escape? Yes, he provided his people. You turned to his people like Rahab. There was a way of escape. Now, the ultimate revision comes later in the Bible when Jesus Christ comes into the world. 1 John 4, 14, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior, the rescuer, the one to run to, one to flee from the coming judgment. Jesus Christ comes. He's our substitute. He dies on the cross. What does he do? He takes the punishment not for his sins, our sins. Here's the incredible thing. The judge of all the earth takes the punishment. So the judge steps out and says, this is what you deserve, but I'm going to take it as the wrath of God. The judgment is offered to him. And he offers forgiveness to those who trust him. And so Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation, a legal term where a judge would say, you're condemned. This is what you deserve. But if you're in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, 
There is no condemnation. And so what is the warning of Scripture? We need to go to Hebrews 2, and it says, well, how can we escape? How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God in his patience and his grace has offered us. There's coming judgment, but there's a way of escape. His name is Jesus Christ, and we need to run to him. And if you've never done that, let this be a warning this morning. Sin is serious. Judgment is real, and Christ is the answer. So run to Christ and trust him. Secondly, as we think about it, it's a reassurance. We live in a sinful world. Sin is all around us. And we look at this world and we, it annoys us. Do you know what annoys us? There seems to be a lack of justice. We see sin prosper. We see people get away with things. And it annoys us because each one of us, even though we're sinful, has a sense of right and wrong and justice. And we look around. But there's a message that comes out of the Bible that says, there is coming a day when the judge of all the earth will do what's right. And there will be justice for the horrendous things that have happened in this world. Those children that have been sacrificed, those children that have been abused, and all those other kinds of situations. And one of the things that disturbs us in the story was that bit where they put their feet on the heads of the kings. That's actually a biblical image that goes away back. See, in Genesis 3, sin comes into the world, Adam and Eve sin, and God brings curses upon Adam and Eve. He also brings curses upon the cause of it, Satan himself. And he says that one day a seed, a descendant of Eve, is going to come into the world, and he's going to right the wrong of this world. And what's the image? His foot will bruise, will crush your head. You see, Jesus Christ will put his foot on the head of Satan. And in the coming judgment, as we read about in Revelation 20, what is ultimately going to happen, that sin will be dealt with, sin will be judged, and Jesus Christ will make Satan his footstool. He will crush the evil one. And that is a reassurance as we look out and things in our minds seem to be getting worse and it disturbs us to know sin will not prosper. The ungodly will not have the final say. But Jesus Christ himself will put his foot on the head of the evil one and he will win and he will conquer and justice will prosper and all things will be made new. That is the reassurance. That's the story of Scripture. And that's why we don't just pick bits out of Scripture. We need to see the whole flow from Genesis to Revelation as we sang about with the kids. The story makes sense. I know my time is gone, but let me finish with this one point. You know what else it does? It's a challenge. Because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming, and God will judge sin. And that involves people we know. Family members, work colleagues, neighbors. And they're facing the judgment of God. And people without Jesus Christ are going to face eternal judgment. We don't like to talk about it, but it's the reality of the pages of Scripture. People we know are facing the judgment of God if they don't put their faith and trust in Christ, and we have the answer. We have the answer in our heads, and our hearts, and his name is Jesus Christ. And what a sleeping church needs to do is it needs to wake up to this reality. We need to share Christ with people who are perishing. Amy Carmichael, famous missionary from here, told a, tells a very 
striking story about this, a, a dream she had one night where she dreamt that people were walking towards a cliff edge and they were just falling off, falling off the cliff. Then she realizes they're blind, they can't see, they can't see the danger in front of them. And she wonders, why are people not stopping? And as she looks out, there are a few people, but not many. There are a few people, there's one over here and there's one over here, but there's so many people coming, they can't stop everybody. So they're, they're stopping ones or twos, but they can't get everybody. And then she looks at the side and there's all these other people who are able to see, but they're oblivious to what's happening around them. They're sitting making daisy chains and playing silly games. And she used that as a challenge to the church because that's the reality. People around us are perishing. They're facing the judgment of God. There's one or two helping, but the rest of us are involved in making daisy chains, caught up in trivia at the side. Here's a challenge. We have the gospel to share with perishing people. May that drive our prayers. We have a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. What do we do in a prayer meeting? Normally on Wednesday, we start off by praying about what we preached about on Sunday, praying into our lives. See, on Wednesday night, the prayer meeting, we're going to be talking, we're going to mention names that we want to see people one for Christ. We're going to mention names, and we're going to pray. Come and join us on Wednesday night. And let's be fervent, passionate in prayer. Let's pray that God would save people who are facing the judgment of God. Let's pray about it. Let it inspire us to be involved in evangelism. There's so many opportunities to reach out. And not just here. I was met with the missionary committee recently here in our church. I said, it's been a while since we sent somebody to the mission field. You know, Baptist missions are looking for missionaries in France, Spain, and Peru. If we really get this challenge, we will see people leave our church because they're concerned about people facing the judgment of God around the world. And we as a church will gladly send them out. And so let that be a challenge. Let it stir something within us. Let's not be sitting aside making daisy chains and playing little games. Let's rise up to the challenge of Scripture. Let's pray as we think about these things.